We're continuing this morning with the sermon series through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. This is the third sermon in that series. If you've missed the preceding two, they are available on the the website. I do want to encourage you to um, maintain a a consistency of listening to these sermons as we work through them uh, because we're we're going to be in the letter to the Romans for a while and um, one sermon will build upon the other. and I think that's becoming more clear as you, you see that we are working our way uh, little bit by little bit, almost literally verse by verse, as we go through uh, this portion of God's inspired and inerrant word. Let us ask the Lord to bless now the reading and hearing of his word. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for all of your goodness and mercy to us, and we are thankful that in your mercy... You've not abandoned us to ourselves, but you have come into the world in the person of your eternal Son, Jesus Christ, who for our sake and our salvation united himself with human nature, that he might live before you in perfect righteousness on our behalf and offer himself up as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And having been raised from the dead and seated at your right hand, he now rules over our lives in grace and truth, the Son of God in power. O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name for the blessing of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would open our minds and open our hearts by your grace. Enable us to respond to your word, to believe you and live by faith. Through Christ our Savior, amen. Let us hear the word of God. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And now unto him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, and glory now and forever. Amen. We come now to the central theme, the thesis statement of Paul's letter to the Romans found in verse 17. For in it, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
Now this verse lays the foundation of the great doctrine of justification by faith alone. And therefore this verse lays the foundation for the unshakable assurance of your eternal salvation and mine through faith in Jesus Christ. Last Sunday we focused primarily on the opening declaration of verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. The Apostle Paul says that he was eager to preach the gospel in Rome, the capital of the ungodly Roman Empire. Even though from a worldly perspective, the gospel of Jesus Christ would have been considered shamefully weak and shamefully foolish. But Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. For as he writes in verse 16, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And that means it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, including everyone in humanity. All of humanity. People of every tribe and tongue and nation. Now Paul's point is that Despite its appearance as something weak and something foolish, the gospel of Christ is the means by which God works powerfully with sovereign power to save everyone who believes in Jesus Christ without regard to their ethnicity or anything else about them. Martin Luther has a great comment here. He writes... The gospel is a power which saves all who believe it. Or it is the divine word which is powerful to rescue all who put their trust in it. This indeed is through God and from God. The gospel is called the power of God in contradistinction to the power of man. The latter, the power of man, is the supposed ability by which a man supposedly obtains salvation by his own strength. But this ability, by human power, God, by the cross of Christ, has utterly declared null and void. And God now gives us his own power by which the believer is empowered Unto salvation. It's the power of God to save. The power of man has nothing to do with it. Calvin likewise comments that it is through the preaching of the gospel that, quote, God thereby puts forth his power to save. And Calvin goes on to write, Since then the gospel invites all to partake of salvation without any difference, Jew or Gentile. It is rightly called the doctrine of salvation. For Christ is there offered, whose particular office, that is his position and his purpose, is to save that which was lost. Since then the gospel delivers from ruin and the curse of endless death. Its salvation is eternal life. Now I included these quotes from Luther and Calvin because I want you to know that this doctrine of salvation by the sovereign power of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ for all who believe, this was absolutely foundational for the Protestant Reformation forbears. 
And indeed, it is absolutely foundational for the assurance of your eternal salvation and mine. And here's the reason. And now I want you to think with me. What is it that we sinners need to be saved from? Now, probably the most common immediate answer is that we need to be saved from our sins. Right? And that's not a bad answer. Because you may remember that when the angel appeared to Joseph and announced that Mary would bear a son, the angel said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. But that's a kind of shorthand way of speaking. Think about it. When we say that Jesus saves us from our sins... What we really mean, what the Bible tells us, is that Jesus saves believers from the ultimate and eternal consequence of their sins, namely, the wrath of God, God's condemning judgment. So the real question is, who is it? that you and I need to be saved from? And the answer is God. Sinners need to be saved from a holy, righteous God of justice to whom every man and woman on earth is accountable. And so then the question becomes, well, who has the power to save us from the wrath of God? And the only logical answer to that question is only God himself has the power to save us from his own righteous wrath. Only God has that power and there you have it. This is Paul's point. This is exactly what God does through Jesus Christ. And that is the reason that Paul declared, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation from the wrath of God to everyone who believes. You got that? This is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the good news. Only God has done for us what only God could do for us. That is, save us from his own righteous wrath. How? By pouring out his righteous wrath against our sins on his son who became a man in order to be our wrath-bearing substitute. Why? So that we might not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the power of God, the power of the cross, the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the power of salvation to everyone who believes. But verse 17 now takes this a step further, telling us actually how or why the gospel saves sinners 
who believe in Christ? How does this work? Why is it so? Is salvation through faith in Christ merely an arbitrary deal? You know, sometimes I think it sounds like that. You know, believe in Jesus, you'll be saved. That's the deal. You know, well, like, like it's just sort of an arbitrary thing. You know, sign here. I don't, no, 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 no. And that's why it doesn't make sense to, to a lot of people who do not yet believe the gospel. It just doesn't make, that kind of presentation just doesn't make any kind of sense. Verse 17 begins, begins to explain how the power of God works in the gospel of Christ to save everyone who believes. It has to do with being restored in righteousness. Being restored to a right standing with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 17 says, For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Quoting the minor prophet Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. Now, before we dig in to verse 17, I want to quote Martin Luther again. In order to show you the significance of verse 17... In Luther's rediscovery of the gospel, probably around the year 1515, while he was struggling to understand Paul's letter to the Romans. Okay, so everybody take a deep breath. Just kind of settle in for a minute. Here's a theological backdrop. Luther was a Catholic monk who agonized over his own personal crisis of faith. How could a sinful man stand in the presence of a holy, righteous God? No matter how many so-called good religious works which Luther did as a monk, he never enjoyed any peace of conscience or assurance of salvation because Luther knew that all of his so-called good works were tainted by his own sinfulness. In his study of Romans, this term in verse 17, the righteousness of God, confronted Luther in a terrifying way. And so Luther wrote about this verse, Romans 1.17. Listen carefully to, to what Luther said about this verse. Quote, I hated that word, righteousness of God, which I had been taught to understand as the righteousness with which God is righteous and punishes the sinner. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. That's a monk. Now, that's not unlike the attitude of some people today who absolutely hate the very idea that God is a God of righteousness, a God who judges sin according to his perfect righteousness and to whom every man and woman is morally accountable. People today in our society tend, now, unlike Luther, people today in our society tend to dismiss the idea of God's righteousness out of hand because of a very defective view of God and 
no knowledge of God's holiness and God's righteous character and the implications of that. That was not Luther's problem. But, but nevertheless, many people today, though they like to dismiss the idea of God's righteousness, they're still like Luther in that they, they hate the doctrine of God's righteousness because they hate the very idea that they are subject to the righteous judgment of a holy, almighty creator. Some people hate God and try to deny his existence because they know in their own souls that their creator is a righteous judge to whom they are accountable. And though they try to deny it, they, like Luther, feel the burden of their guilt before God and they absolutely hate it. Now, I said they, I said some people, but the real question is, what about you? What do you think? How do you feel about a righteous God who punishes sin, to whom you are accountable? Have you ever taken that seriously for yourself? as Luther did for himself. Now, stay with me, because as as Luther felt the weight of his sin and guilt and condemnation, he continued to struggle with this verse, verse 17, until, he says, by God's mercy, it dawned upon Luther that the righteousness of God in this verse refers not to God's moral character by which God judges sinners, but rather refers to the righteousness, the right standing with God, which God graciously gives to sinners who trust in Jesus Christ. Luther described how this insight completely changed his life. Listen, it's a long quote. Listen. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And thereby I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous person lives by a gift of God, namely, by faith. And this is the meaning The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he through faith, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word righteousness of God. Thus, that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. Now, Martin Luther, a monk, went from hating the very words righteousness of God to loving those same words as the sweetest words he knew. For when he understood those words, the righteousness of God, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they became for him the gate to paradise. Now, what made the difference in Luther's heart and mind? It was a difference, of course, wrought by the Holy Spirit. It was a difference that enabled Luther to grasp that. It was the difference between, listen, 
It's the difference between the need to earn a right relationship with God and the gift of a right relationship with God. That's the difference. It's the difference between earning a right relationship with God and receiving a gift of the right relationship with God. The difference between earning by work and receiving by faith. Luther began by thinking of the righteousness of God as the perfect standard which had to be obtained by his own works. But no matter how Luther tried, he knew that he could never attain to that level of righteousness. He knew that he could never be good enough for God to be right with God. Now let's stop right there. Pause for a moment. Because this is the issue. This is is how the gospel works in your life. Do you think that you can be good enough for God to be right with God? Do you think you can be good enough for God to be right with God? Now, I know, I know that we would all say, well, nobody is perfect. But what is the point of saying that? I mean, do you take comfort in the notion that although you're not perfect, you're probably not as bad as a lot of other people. But what's the point of saying that? You think God grades on a curve? And how could you, po- how could you possibly know where you are on that curve? How could you possibly know where you are on that curve? And furthermore, that so-called curve, so-called curve, has already been set. The pass-fail grade, it's already been set. It was set by Jesus in his life of sinless, perfect obedience. His righteousness. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life which was perfectly aligned with the righteousness of God, his Father. Now that was Luther's problem and it's everybody's problem because Luther knew that he could never live up to that standard and that's where the oppression of guilt and the continual sense of condemnation come from. So look, if you, you, in the privacy of the inner sanctums of your own soul, that voice that you can't turn off in your brain, if you live with this kind of oppressive guilt and the condemnation that continually says that you've never been good enough for God, you will never be good enough for God, and you could not be good enough for God. You've never been good enough for God. You'll never be good enough for God. You can never be good enough for God. All of which is true then here's what you need to do. You need to quit looking at yourself in all of your not good enoughness and start looking to and trusting in Jesus Christ and all of His good enoughness, His righteousness on your behalf. His 
perfect righteousness. His eternal right standing with his Father is the gift of righteousness which God freely offers to you to be received by faith in Jesus Christ. To receive Christ by faith is to receive Jesus Christ in all the fullness of his perfect righteousness. And thereby through that bond of faith in union with Christ in his perfect righteousness. You are clothed in his righteousness. You are secure in his righteousness in a right relationship, a right standing with God forever. This is your personal experience of the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. It's not about you. It's about Him in His perfect righteousness. This is what Luther experienced. This is what made the difference in his life. As he said, this verse became to him the gate of paradise when he realized that the righteousness of God in verse 17 refers to that righteousness of God, that right standing with God, which God freely gives to sinners who place their faith in Jesus Christ. You see, in this sense, the verse can be translated in the gospel. The righteousness from God is revealed. That's a good, reasonable translation because it is exactly what Paul wrote to the Philippians describing his own personal experience of the grace of God by which he received righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Now we're going to shift from Luther's personal experience to the Apostle Paul's personal experience and he, because he spoke about himself. Paul spoke about himself. Listen, quote, Not having a righteousness of my own. Say that. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so the righteousness of God in verse 17 refers not to any righteousness that we could earn or attain for ourselves in order to get right with God, but to a righteousness which comes from outside of us. As Luther said, a righteousness which is alien to us, a righteousness not of our own, not of our own doing. Rather, it is that righteousness, that right standing, that right relationship with God, which God himself freely gives to everyone who has faith in Jesus. Now, why? How does that work? Think of it like this. Before Jesus died for you, Jesus lived for you. We're going to do that again. Before Jesus died for me, say it. Before Jesus died for me, Jesus lived for me. Jesus lived His perfectly obedient, sinless, righteous life for you. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you receive not only the forgiveness of your sins by His atoning death you receive also as your very own His perfect righteousness by His sinless life. 
If you are in union with Jesus Christ by faith, you are clothed in His righteousness. You are declared to be righteous in Him because His righteousness is given to you, credited to your account. And listen to this. Clothed in His righteousness, having received the gift of His righteousness, You are as welcome in the Father's presence as Jesus is. Clothed in His righteousness. Having received His righteousness by faith, you are as welcome in the presence of the Holy One as Jesus Himself is. You believe that? How can a sinful man stand in the presence of a holy and righteous God? Through faith in Jesus Christ, restored in his righteousness, which is the gift of God received by faith in Christ. This is Paul's emphasis when he writes, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, meaning that the gift of God's righteousness is simply and purely a matter of faith. That is simply placing our faith in Christ and his work of salvation for us. And it is in this sense that Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. Or as it can be translated, the one who is righteous by faith shall live. The one who is righteous by faith shall be saved and shall live eternally. In union with Jesus Christ, the, the righteous one. Now that leads us to the critical uh, point, in, in another critical point in this passage. Um, and, and hang in here just a little bit more because we've got to ask this question. What is faith? What does it mean to believe? The men who are in Wednesday morning Bible study heard a little bit of this already, but it's always worth hearing again. First of all, let's be clear. Biblical faith is not wishing and hoping. It's not wishing and hoping. Or it's not just believing as though it was some kind of magical mental power. You know, you got to have faith. Just got to believe. You know, like the motto of the New Orleans Saints believe. No, biblical faith, is, it's not a matter of positive thinking. It's not a matter of a positive attitude. It's not a matter of generating enough willpower within us to go against the odds. Mm. No, 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 no. And, and biblical faith is, in Christ is more than simply saying that you believe that he is the Son of God. Oh, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Got that. No, true faith is more than simply believing right things about God and Jesus in your head. When the Bible speaks of believing in Christ or having faith in Christ, it is primarily a matter of entrusting yourself to Christ, relying upon Christ, depending upon Christ, looking to Christ, entrusting Him to do for you what you could never do for yourself save you from the wrath of a righteous God. Now, to entrust yourself to Christ as your Savior means, yes, that you, you 
You, you give yourself over to him. You, you submit yourself to his lordship over you. To submit yourself to his lordship means that you commit yourself to obey him. Why? Because you trust him. Because you know that he loves you. And, and you know that because you know that he, he, he died and, and, and rose for you and the gates of paradise have been opened to you by his righteousness. And so you, you receive him and you embrace him and you rest yourself upon him and you rejoice in him as your Savior and Lord and therefore you seek to, to live for him. But, it, but it's all a matter of solely of faith in him and not in yourself. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. That's faith. Saving faith worked in our souls by the power of God through the Holy Spirit in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is by this true faith in Christ that we receive the gift of the righteousness of God so that we are restored to a right relationship with God and are saved from His wrath now and in the future. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes in him. For as it is written, he who is righteous by faith shall live. To God be the glory. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the glorious gospel of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. The Son of God in power. We pray that your Holy Spirit would so work your heart, your word into our hearts that it would renew our minds and transform our lives that we might live more faithfully as your people. To the glory of your name, amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, please stand to affirm our faith this morning from the Heidelberg Catechism, one of our historic confessions in the Reformed faith. Focusing on the doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. Christian, how are you right with God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, in spite of the fact that my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have not kept any one of them. And that I am still ever prone to all that is evil. Nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of pure grace, God grants to me the benefits of the perfect sacrifice of Christ, imputing to me his righteousness and holiness as if I had never committed a single sin or had ever been sinful, as if I myself had fulfilled all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me. If only I accept such favor with a trusting heart. Amen.